This is John Hill, and you've tuned into an Agile Mindset. I'm here with Rob Leggetti. He's a Scrum Master Chapter Lead in the Philadelphia metropolitan area. Others have referred to him as a high-caliber IT professional, outstanding project manager, and exemplary professional. But for me, I refer to him as the type of leader that I will follow into the trenches and go to war for. Rob, how are you today? I'm doing well, John. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being able to join. It's interesting. I know that we were talking about this topic for a few weeks now, but I wanted to really dive into how do we encourage leaders to embrace the servant leadership mantle and how do we empower their teams or organizations to that ownership to increase accountability? So I know that's a huge uh, topic. And we can, let's just start with the encouraging leaders to embrace that servant leadership. When you started on your Agile journey, when you first um, was introduced to it, uh, you, you share a story about interaction with your manager and uh, a book that you saw. Yeah. So can you kind of give that uh, story, a short snips of that story of how, and how that went? Sure. So sitting in my, my manager's office one day back around uh, 2008, 2009, and we had invested um, about a year of our life uh, preparing for um, an identity and access management project. And what we did was we did, we built a business case over several months. And then from that business case, we were able to secure the funding. And with that funding, we went into um, the RFP and RFI process, right? So mm-hmm. we, we sought out the proper tool that we were going to use and the implementation partner. And we did that for about a year. And then when we, when we secured that partner and that tool, uh, we went on about a six-month journey where, you know, at the end of six months, things just weren't going well at all. And we went from trying to make success of the project to project recovery, right? So we were trying to figure out what are we going to do next, which included um, uh, replacing our implementation partner. So I was sitting in my manager's office one day, and I looked down on his desk, and he had two books, and they were brand new, and they were given to him by the CIO, and it was... Uh, software development using Scrum, authored by Ken Schwaber and Mike Beadle. And the other one was Agile Estimation and Planning, authored by Mike Cohn, right? And right. these are all uh, three tremendous uh, thought leaders and influencers in the Agile community, right? Exactly. And I looked at them, and I'm a big reader, right? I read a lot. And I noticed those books, and I said to him, I'm like, wow, that, what are they? That looks interesting. And he said, well, Tom gave this to me but we're never going to use them here. We're too conservative. And so he pushed the books my way and he said, you can take these home. And I went home and um, for the next week or so, um, probably three out of five days, I was working from home and I read the scrum book authored by Ken Schwaber and Mike Beadle. And it was so profound what I was reading because I was living in a waterfall professionally for about seven or eight years there. And, and I wanted to work that way. And I dedicated myself to finding organizations that, also wanted to work within the Scrum framework. And that's really where my journey started. And my journey took me from um, business analyst, project manager into product management and product ownership. And I spent about five to six years in that space. And I found myself gravitating more towards the agile and Scrum 
articles that would come through my fa- uh, my daily feed uh, mm-hmm. less than the product management articles. And I started to develop a passion around that. And so my, my agile journey took me from product management into uh, Scrum Mastery and Agile Coaching. And right now, um, actually a Scrum Master Chapter Lead, which is a really fancy title for uh, Scrum Master People Manager. <laughs> what I really see myself as is developing servant leaders within the organization. And so that's just a little bit of, you know, where my journey started, where it's taken me and where I am now. So it's, it's, it's actually interesting. Um, going back to what you were saying that your manager at that point uh, said that we're too conservative. Um, was, was the information that you were reading that radical? Is Agile really that radical, I guess, to a waterfall mindset? I think to that organization, it was considered radical and outside at that time, right? This is 2008, 2009. So you're, you know, you're six years removed from, you know, Snowbird and the signing of the manifesto, right? Um, Highly regulated organization um, in the, in the um, uh, utilities industry, right? So heavy layers of regulation, heavy layers of compliance. And again, we were working on an identity and access management project. So to try and take um, an agile approach or to try to bring Scrum into that organization was radical at the time. And I think that's why he gave me those books. And that my manager at the time was very risk averse. And I, I, I owe him a debt of gratitude because I learned a lot about evaluating, you know, building RFIs, building RFPs, evaluating tools and, and implementation partners. Um, but, but when things are going wrong, you have to be able to, you know, properly inspect and adapt and pivot when things are going wrong. And I think we just waited too long. And that's how we ended up in project recovery. In the combination to that, the waiting too long, do you think it's, it's the waterfall mentality that, hey, we need to formulate this perfect plan and stick to it? Do you think that that's something that managers nowadays still hold true? And it's hard for them to shift out of that mindset. I think to an extent that's still there. I think there's comfort in planning, right? I think when people, like, you know, they lay out the perfect project plan and, you know, it's linear and, and it, it, I think they sleep better at night with something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, building software and, and digital products is, you know, it's, they're, they're very, it's very complex, very adaptive, right? You're constantly dealing in the unknown. Um, so, plans don't necessarily go well. They feel right, but they quickly, you know, they quickly go off course, right? And I think you just have to have the ability to recognize that um, and be able to adjust. And um, I think there's a lot of managers that I've come into contact with and and leaders and senior leaders that um, just lack that ability to go off course, right? There's a lot of factors involved. It's, you know, they have the plan, um, but then there's also their mindset, right? And the way that they operate within an organization. And so they're operating within their comfort zone. Um, they're in a position of power based on their title uh, and their role in the organization. And they're going to continue going down the path that makes them feel comfortable, Um, And I think it takes a really strong and courageous person like an agile coach or a scrum master to help those managers understand how agile ways of working and intent-based leadership can actually work 
to their advantage. And so that's, that's the, that's the dilemma is to, you know, find that person or those people that can help influence these managers to a better way of thinking. And the other point about that is John is I, I think now it's, you know, they're almost being forced into it, right? Because you're either going to, you're either going to change or you can die, right? And that's right. what everyone said best, change or die, right? <laughs> you're either going to start working this way because this is the, the business world that we live in, uh, or you're going to find yourself um, maybe doing something else pretty quickly. Yeah, and that's interesting because I think um, quite a bit of the memes that I've seen recently, or at least when the COVID-19 epidemic started beginning, was what was the greatest influence of your digital transformation? And it was like leaders, customers, or COVID-19. These are situations where people, like you said, are forced, you know, to get into this um, almost kicking and screaming. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw that firsthand at my current organization is it was this just like everybody else, right? I mean, nobody was expecting this. And then just we woke up one day and there was this dark cloud forming. Um, But the organization that I was in just was very graceful in, you know, evaluating a risk that they've, they've never, to my knowledge, have never seen nor planned for. Right. Um, but one thing I did notice was that their focus was on the people, right there. They, they had to quickly <laughs> inspect and adapt. Right. And, um, it was a very seamless transition. Um, there was more unknowns, uh, that you could shake a stick at and <laughs> this organization. And then this, this company I'm with, um, there's a lot of, so they're in a financial industry, right? So you're, you're calming investors, you're calming high net worth individuals. And um, you are also have to pay attention to um, the, the risks that are involved with having key people working from home, right? Because you've got um, customer information and sensitive data that you have to pay attention to. So the, the overall sh- shift and pivot from office work into remote work was was graceful. It was seamless. And I felt like all these leaders that were making these decisions really had a good, a really profound focus on people. So would you say for, for leaders who are not in that space, for leaders who are not, that's not their first way of thinking, would you say to really engage people, um, not as resources, but actual people, um, would that be part of the steps that you would encourage them to take in order to receive that servant leadership mantle? I think so. I think so. I, that's something that somebody who's very influential to me said many times is that, you know, it's people, not resources, right? That's just an old way of, old way of thinking, right? Resources were how people were, you know, referred to back in the, you know, early 1900s, the manufacturing days, right? The, the the Frederick Taylor way of thinking. And it's understanding that you're thinking more in terms of humans when you refer to them as people, right? Not resources. And with people come mistakes, imperfections. And if it's really, it's, it's helping them better understand, it's helping anybody, John, better understand that people are going to make mistakes. And from those mistakes come 
opportunities to learn. And with those opportunities to learn come, sometimes it comes innovation. Sometimes it, you know, it leads to more productive ways of working because, you know, there's, there's a layer of trust that's developed. And with that layer of trust, I think becomes more, comes more productivity, right? People are, are working happier. Um, They're working because they feel trusted. They have a purpose. Um, They have a, a manager who is, you know, demonstrating servant leadership traits and principles. And just, I think overall, you have a happier group of people and to help them understand, um, help anybody understand, but in particular leaders help them understand that uh, I think it works. It's best for the entire organization and everybody wins. No, I definitely agree. As I mentioned before, um, one of my previous uh, clients, one of their teams had a situation and their leadership, I, don't, I won't say that they overreacted, but they were very furious and let it show. And they didn't realize how contagious their emotions were that it affected team's performance. So you can't look at people and not expect for them to receive whatever vibe or feeling you're getting off. And, and I say that because one of the books that I've been lately reading uh, is the emotional intelligence mm-hmm. and being able to have that empathy and interact with people. And kind of what you were saying where, you know, you have to be able to trust and, and build that trust um, and understand that things are not always going to go according to plan. People are going to make failures, but trusting them to learn from their mistakes, trusting that they're going to be there to correct their mistakes. We want to be able to make sure that we're supporting them in the right way and not putting additional fear. Because I tell managers all the time, the more intimidation you give to your team, they'll be worried about every little thing that they do, and they will be afraid to make a step forward. Mm. Yeah, and you mentioned the word awareness, right? Mm-hmm. The characteristics of servant leadership. And I think there's... So, and, and it's layered with emotional intelligence, as you mentioned, right? So you have emotional intelligence where you, know, you have the ability to control your emotions and to be able to maintain your composure. But part of that is it's, it's awareness. It's awareness of your tone. It's awareness that words matter, yes. right? It's awareness of the delivery. It's the awareness that how are the people going to react to you in the way that you deliver a message, right? They're going to walk away feeling fearful. We have a really you have a good chance that you're probably not going to get an outcome that you're after if you've right. left a bunch of people feeling scared and fearful, right? right? But if you're in control of your emotions and you have the general awareness that you're in a moment where you're trying to deliver a message, and if you deliver it right and you're in a way to inspire and help people understand that you know, whatever the situation is, maybe there was a mistake that happened, right? They missed a sprint goal, for example, or bug was discovered in production that, that uh, impacted some uh, important customers, right? These things happen. And it's in the delivery that not only are you going to get the outcome to solve the problem, but you're also building leadership capital, right? You're, you're not only building leadership capital, but you're also, you're positioning yourself as the kind of leader that people want to follow, right? The kind of leader that people will listen to. 
uh, the kind of people that leader that people will respect. And I, I can't say enough about awareness and it layered into emotional intelligence. I, it's something I'm also very interested in emotional intelligence. And I think we've, you know, it's, it's never been more on display than it is today in our current world. Right. <laughs> no, I definitely agree. Um, that, that is something that's very lacking, um, especially in the political arena that along with empathy mm. and just really feeling relating to the people relating to the hurt that's going on in across the country is this actually not just one particular place it's really echoing from minnesota to dc la philadelphia to atlanta all over the country and i even see messages from people outside of the country sharing the same emotion mm. But you can have all of that. You can have all the empathy. You can have all the trust amongst the people. But if the leadership isn't on board, if the leadership isn't aware, self-aware of what's going on, um, then you're, you're, you are going to run into a roadblock. There's no doubt, right? And I yeah. think that that word empathy is, it's also key here, right? I mean, having empathy for, if you go back to the, the example of, you know, the, the, the agile team that there might be a bug in production or they missed a sprint goal, right? It's, it's having empathy that, you know, if you look at the fact that maybe what the situation was when they missed that sprint goal or how that bug made in production, right? Mm-hmm. Um, being able to put yourself, you know, it's almost like consciously putting yourself into that team's shoes, right, to understand their position, right? I don't think anybody came in with the intent to miss a sprint goal or to introduce a bug into production. Right. But to understand, you know, where they're coming from, I think is huge. And and I think the word empathy in its truest sense of the definition is misunderstood, you know, today in, in the political world and in the, the, the events that we've seen unfold over the last few weeks, right? Yeah. Empathy is... It's, 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 I think it's, it's slightly misunderstood and misused. Empathy is, like I said, right? It's being able to the best of your ability to put yourself into another person's shoes, right? To project yourself into their world, right. to, to try and understand what their worldview is and what their reality might be, right? Empathy isn't, yeah, I get it. I, I understand. Or, or yeah, I, c- I can imagine, Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there's a little bit of empathy there, but I think empathy is really consciously trying to put yourself into another person's worldview or reality. And it's very, very hard to do. Yeah, it just goes all around, right? It's really just, it's a, it's a conscious awareness. And I think in order for people to really get that empathy, you have to understand what the context of that person was experiencing or that team was experiencing, like you had mentioned. Like maybe there was an issue with the development servers. They can they probably could not push the code into integration. And that caused a delay. And then that may have caused them frustration and lost time. There's so many factors that people need to consider looking at, all right, are we focused on the output or are we focused on the outcome? They may have missed their sprint goal. Well, what is it that they learn? Maybe we got gained some additional knowledge and we can provide some more uh, redundancy in the infrastructure so that we won't have to worry about continuous integration going down. 
Hmm. Maybe somebody was sick and there wasn't enough communication going on to pick up their task. So now they understand how to be able to interact more and communicate better. Yeah. They have to be able to look at what was going on in that situation and not just, oh, well, you didn't complete this task or you didn't meet this goal. Therefore, you guys need to work harder. Mm. That's, that's not always the answer. And to me, embracing that servant leader mantle, like you said, you have to be able to put yourself in their shoes. You have to be able to understand those contexts and you have to be able to see what the team is going to do or if they need help in order to learn from the situation that just happened. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And as you move past empathy and you know, we all, we're all in a business, we all have a job to do. So once we figure out, once you go through that, that cycle of inspection and adaptation, you're, you know, you're figuring out what to do next to try to avoid the situation happening again. But at the same time, you might have a, you know, a fractured team, right? Mm-hmm. So then another characteristic, obviously, of the, the servant leadership persona is the ability to heal, right? So how do you take that fractured team and help them become whole again, right? Because it's not only the team, but it's yourself, right? I mean, there's some, yeah. you know, how do you move together in that regard, right? So you're not healing the team, and you're not moving them into more of a position of feeling whole again, but you're, you're also making whole yourself, right? Yeah. Um, you're going on that journey of healing together. It's because you're all, because you should be in that together, right? You should be in that together as a team and as the leader. And so I think that there's that, that element of healing to get them back to, like I said, that wholeness, um, get their confidence level back where it needs to be. And, and part of that is going through that cycle of, of retrospection and figuring out what went wrong and what can we do in the, you know, to improve in the future. And so I find that to be also, you know, there's no, you need to have an awareness around that, right? Like, okay, I'm not just going to tell them to go fix it and then I'm going to go back to my, my office and, and hope that they fix it. But All I'm right. going to work close with them and step through this with them so that, you know, they have ownership, but also I have a piece of the ownership as well. And, you know, interesting, now that we're speaking on it, one of the things that a lot of people push for in those retrospectives is just having the team involved um, because um, one of the issues is they will be worried that the manager would be looking to point fingers or not looking to be that servant leader. But just having this conversation, it makes me wonder if you get to a point where the team is trusting and you really have a manager who's a servant leader, then what would be the harm in involving them? Because they could really be that healer. They could really be that support to help the team move past whatever shortcomings that they ran into. Yeah. And that's, it's interesting, right? Because I've, I worked for an organization where that was a, it was a debatable topic, right? It was, you know, some of the, some of the managers wanted to be in the retrospectives um, and the expectation was that they were going to, the team was going to publish the notes from the retrospective. Right. And mm-hmm. so there's, there's pros and cons to that. Uh, let me see if I could break this down. First of all, the retrospectives for the team, right. It's for them to take an opportunity to look at the past sprint, obviously what, what went well, 
and where are the opportunities for improvement, but also to take some action out of that, right? Right. That's for the team. I feel as though a team that, you know, a team that wants to be transparent in everything that they do, right? If there's psychological safety in that team, in that organization, those team members might be open to allowing management attend, right? Because if they have a concern about um, a management decision or management behavior or whatever the case might be, if there's psychological safety, they can have that conversation with that manager in the retrospective and good things are going to come out of that, right? I'm actually yet to see a team or an organization that's able to do that and do it effectively because psychological safety is very, very hard to obtain in, in bureaucratic organizations. It's hard to obtain. It's not impossible, but it's hard to obtain. So I think the nirvana state is to get those teams to a sense of psychological safety where they can have those transparent retros that include management and together the team and management can, you know, define opportunities for improvement. Right. Right. But I think you, you know, to get to that state, you have to work on the psychological safety. You have to make sure that that, the trust is there between the management and the teams to have those retrospectives, those effective retrospectives. That really depends on time. And like you said, that trust, building that trust. Yeah, it's not impossible. Um, I mean, I'd love it. I'd, you know, <laughs> I work very, very hard to, you know, earn the trust of my team, right? I, I pay attention. I, I listen. Listening's hard. <laughs> you know, I mean, listening's very hard. And I mean, that's another characteristic of a servant leader, right? You know, you think about, like, you talk about active listening. It's really, really hard, especially in a world where, you know, we're, it's easy to be distracted. You've, you know, you've got two, three things going on at once. You've got 16 browsers open at once and you're trying to stay laser focused. It's, it's really, really hard to learn, uh, listen, but if you're able to master that, that intent listening, right, you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to more effectively build that trust with your team or with, with just generally others, right? Listening with intent. And it is active. It's not passive. It's not just trying to pick out the key points, but it's, it's listening to get that context you just mentioned, right? Yeah. Uh, It's listening to understand, right? It's listening so that you, okay, can make the other person feel as though you're listening. And that's very, very hard because you're either, if you're, if you're the, the leader and you're listening, you're either thinking and processing the meeting you just left or you're thinking ahead to the meeting that you have to go into after that, <laughs> right? But if you're sitting there and you're actively listening to what your team has to say, Right and they know you're listening, you're building trust, you're building respect, and you're, you're earning the credibility, like I mentioned earlier, right? It's very, very important, and it's hard. Yeah. It's very hard. And it's interesting how just these steps alone can really amplify the servant leader and, and build that trust. Um, yeah, I mean, if you, like, think about that, right? So think about servant leadership, right? It's servant leadership. And I've probably, and, and I'm a student of this, right? I'm, I'm a student of servant leadership. It's, it's something that I discovered along my agile journey. Think back to like when you were in kindergarten and grade school, right? It was, you know, leadership is, is you're the kid and you're, you're telling everybody else what to do. You're saying, no, these are the teams that we're going to divide up to play kickball during recess, 
right? That's the kind of leadership that we're taught at a young age, right? You know, my journey in servant leadership, you know, it, it happened in my late 20s. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but it was, that's where I really started to develop my self-awareness and being aware of not only myself, my behaviors, my words, my actions, and my impact on people. But it, it you know, it's, well, it was my, you know, awareness, self-awareness of myself in the way that I'm interacting with others, right? That it developed in my late 20s, right? Right. And as I, I got into my professional career, it became more evident that, um, you know, my awareness of myself I needed to to continuously improve that, and then when I when I got into you know I started my agile journey, it was when I came across Robert Greenleaf's thesis on um, servant leadership, and I started to study it very intently because it resonated with me. Um, I come from a family of service, so service to me is just part of everyday life, and you know. I started to break down what servant leadership really means. And to me, it's not, you know, when we think of servant, we think of one who serves, right? Somebody who does like menial tasks or labors for another person, right? You know, in the, in the context of scrum mastery, it's somebody who moves jira tickets around or schedules <laughs> meetings or just shows up at the daily stand up and says, go, <laughs> you know, that's, that's servant, right? But it's not servant. It's service leadership, right? It's the definition of service is the assistance or benefit that you're providing and active listening is it's, you know, it's a benefit you're providing. You're, you're listening to your team members. Um, it's an act of, it's a helpful activity or you're doing something that benefits another person. Right. right? So it's service leadership. Um, and so I, you know, I try to keep that in mind at all times and, you know, whenever I'm talking about this topic, I'm trying to, I usually start out with like, let's get this into the right context, right? You're not moving Jira tickets around. You're not uh, putting uh, meetings in Outlook on everybody's calendar and showing up and, and kicking off the meeting, right? You're providing a service and, and what you're doing is you're holding up a mirror in front of the team, right? And you're asking powerful questions so that they too can become servant leaders, Right. And, and that's how you grow organization full of servant leaders who are self-aware, right? Who have empathy, who have emotional intelligence, and who have the, the wherewithal to heal a team or other people. Yes. Right? And this is something that, you know, I, again, going back to my journey in servant leadership, it started with me becoming more self-aware in my late 20s, right? I went through a couple of very intense life situations that caused me to reflect. And, you know, I'm a deep thinker as it is. And, and you know, it's a gift and a curse. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really where my, you know, my journey in servant leadership started. It started with being, be, being forced into self-awareness in my late twenties. And I've been a student of this form of leadership um, even more so in the last five to seven years as I've become a people leader and I try to practice these these principles every day with my team, right? And it's um, it's very fulfilling, and it's radical, John. Yeah, radical, right? Because it's going back to you know my schoolyard example. Most of us have been grown up, uh, you know, grew up and with the style of leadership that it's command and control, or you know, you're 
you're telling people what to do, right? You're telling people what to do rather than recognizing that autonomy is a basic human element that we're born with. And that if you give autonomy, you know, then you're going to get the best out of people. And so while working in your typical modern corporate organization, it's very, very hard to demonstrate these servant leadership principles, but it takes a lot of courage to, to, to live these principles, you know, and, and it's something that I just really focus on and I try to do. So that, that's, that's a very interesting segue. One of the things when I run into managers who are first experiencing their agile transformation or their agile journey, they are concerned that they won't have a role because if the, all the teams are autonomous, well, what is my, you know, what am I supposed to do as a manager? What am I supposed to be doing? And as you had mentioned, it's that service servant leadership. Yeah. Is that support? Is that making sure that they're whole? Is that building them up so that they can understand your intent and make decisions without having to wait for you to respond always? So, how would you also help other managers understand how to empower their teams or why to empower their teams um, for that autonomy? So if you layer on top of, so you mentioned intent, right? So Mm -hmm. another profound influence, right? David Marquette, Mm intent-based leadership, turn the ship around, right? One of my favorites. It's moving from directing and telling people what to do to experimenting with providing autonomy and asking one powerful question, how can I help? Right. I was just in a conversation today where I was meeting with a, a product manager and he's new and we're, we're standing up a new agile team and he's the product manager on the team. And I reached out to him and, and we were talking about just uh, you know, what, what, what the first 30 days looks like for this team. And, you know, he was expressing to me that while his expertise is in product management, you know, he's, he's uh, learning what the scrum framework entails and, and what it means to work, you know, in an agile organization. And you could tell he was just, he was a little bit uncomfortable with saying that to me, almost like he was (laughs) embarrassed, but it was, you could just tell. And and so I I just said to him, I said, listen, so-and-so I'm, I want to, I'm here to help you. Like I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to talk about the first 30 days. Let's set up a, you know, a one-on-one and walk through what the first 30 to 90 days might look like for a new scrum team. Right. You know, I want to help you. I'm here to help you understand it. Um, I'm here to help you partner you up with agile coaches. And I, and I said that and I could all, I could hear the tone in his voice. It was like an exhale, right? Like, <laughs> hey, I don't feel like I feel comfortable. Right. And so, and there's the awareness, right? It's how's this person going to react to this? Like, I'm not coming in and telling you, well, you got to do this, right? You got to get the team formed and, you know, let's jump into the forming stage and let's do X, Y, and Z. It's let me get this guy comfortable, first of all, because when I get him comfortable, um, I'm going to get the best out of him. Right. Right. So to go back to the point around intent-based leadership, it's asking that powerful question of how can I help you? Or just saying, I'm here to help you. Right. And I think that that's what a lot of managers struggle with is, 
how do I move from having one foot inside the team room, right? Directing and, and looking for things to maybe comment on or defining the how or uh, making a suggestion that, you know, most teams are going to nine out of 10 times. They're going to, Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, we're going to go with what so-and-so manager said. Right. Uh, how do you go from having both feet outside the team room um, and just asking powerful questions like, what can I help with? Is there anything that, you know, what capabilities can I help you provide to the team to help them perform at their best? Uh, what are some of the organizational impediments that you might be experiencing that I can use in my influence in my role to get rid of so that the team can, can move forward and can get better, right? That's value. It's not tangible value. I, I, you know, I didn't deliver some Gantt chart. I didn't put together some PowerPoint deck. I didn't uh, help the team deliver uh, a valuable feature that, you know, hit a KPI and produced X amount of dollars for the organization. But I asked powerful questions that helped, you know, help a team do better work, move faster, and, and, and deliver right? But also feel like they have a sense of purpose and to feel right. on top. That's right. value. It's not tangible value, but there's value in that. And so intent-based leadership is, is about asking those powerful questions. It's, it's achieving greatness and, and it's not to, you know, avoid errors. Um, it's, you know, it's helping people think, right? It's helping people think. It's helping people use their, their brains rather than, you know, being told what to do. It's, you know, leaders giving control and not taking control. And, you know, it's something that I, I deeply respect. Um, I've marked up the book in so many ways, you know, turn the <laughs> ship um, another podcast, the agile uprising podcast, um, group of guys based out of Philly here, um, just did a podcast with David Marquette, um, around leadership and, um, fascinating individual and a very influential book. And if you ever want to learn about intent-based leadership, read and study the book and, and just experiment with some of the practices that he talks about. It's been profoundly influential on me. Yeah. I think the closest that I probably got to intent-based leadership, I um, was reading a team of teams mm. and then they were talking about how they had scrum teams of 150 people and how that was unmanageable. But when they broke it out into various scrum of scrums, expressing their intent to each level, then the communication was very fluid. Um, so I definitely will be checking into more of that intent-based leadership. Wonderful. Um, it's, it's something that we have to realize that we managers need to delegate, but still, if they're going to hire people, hire them to do the work. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so. If I were to, I want to, I want to see if I can give you a practical example of um, intent-based leadership in action. So, previous organization I worked for, um, you know, we were there was a there was a cultural shift towards that, right? Intent-based leadership and helping managers, you know, whether it's middle managers or some functional manager, really understand that they can, you know, the influence and the productivity spike that you can get from empowering people and helping teams feel autonomous. One of the things that I did on a regular basis was have um, conversations with these functional managers. And I was a functional manager there as well. 
at the same time, I managed a group of scrum masters mm-hmm. and it was meeting with them and helping them understand through examples, right? And this was not easy, John. I had to build trust with these people and create an environment where I could have these conversations, but it was helping them understand like in a particular meeting, you know, they might've just gone, may have gone unconscious in the meeting and started providing direction to the team, right? Because they, they fell back into what felt comfortable for them or felt right for them just providing direction. So I would meet one-on-one and give specific examples of observations that I had in these meetings that I was in with them of where they could have asked, how can I help? Or, you know, took a powerful moment and, you know, gave autonomy to a team, gave control to a team, but instead kept that control and directed the team. So the point is, in these regular one-on-ones, I would provide specific examples of things that I observed or things that I heard as a means to facilitate the conversations around how to move more towards that, how can I help mentality, focusing on changing the environment, right? And that's what we try to do in our role is create the environment for the team to thrive, Right. right. That's a definition of a great scrum master, right? It's, right. you know, doing great things within the team, but outside the team, you're creating an environment for them to thrive. And that's what we're trying to do uh, with functional managers is give them the space to thrive so that they too can go out and help whatever's in their sphere of control, you know, create the environment for others to thrive. And, you know, that just, it becomes infectious. It, <laughs> That's a good pandemic, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we're that's what we're trying to do. And it takes a lot of work. And you know, these things so I'll wrap up by saying this. It's you have to build an environment of trust and and let's just say trust in these conversations with these functional leaders that you can, you know, have these conversations, these tough conversations and give these tough examples. And it's not easy to do right? You have to build a rapport and you have to put in the work, right? Yes. And that work might be taking them to lunch or, you know, sometimes you gotta, you know, you gotta massage the ego a little bit yes. you know, to, to, to get what, you know, get what you're after, right? And if you're willing to put in that work and you're willing to put in the time and you're willing to, you know, massage the ego, so to speak, you know, it's these little, little tactics that you, you can employ to create a brighter future. And, you know, it's hard work. That is definitely one thing that I like doing, or at least like doing before COVID happened. But I would gather my team at my house and just have a cookout. Mm. We wouldn't talk about no work. We would just just enjoy the moment. And that bonding, them letting me know that, you know what? He's just a regular guy like me. He's approachable. Appreciate the time of inviting us over and just having genuine kind conversation. Yeah, those, like you said, those speak volumes. And I, th- I think when leaders understand that they don't have to be scrum masters in order to be a servant leader, then, but they can still incorporate some of the same principles, some of the same mindset to get the same results and output yeah yeah and it's tough right i mean we're sometimes you you have these conversations and you feel like you know well you're talking about a fairy tale well no i'm not it's you know i'm talking about what a better working environment looks like right i'm talking about 
you know, I'm, I'm doing what I can control and I can control my emotions. I can control my ability to listen and be focused that person in front of me. Um, I can control my tone. I control my words. I can control my actions. These are things that I can control, right? Um, and if I can have a conversation like this, right, and, you know, with a manager or a leader and they walk away feeling inspired or they walk away thinking about something that I said, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've been influential and I've created some change. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's what it's all about, right? It's, you know, if it, call it whatever it is, it's a fairy tale, it's a, it's a nirvana state, it's aspirational. Yeah, it's all those things. It sounds great on paper, um, but to see it in practice and to work around like-minded individuals, I just, you know, enjoy going to work every day if I'm going to be <laughs> right? I'm gonna, And that's what I'm trying to do. I want to work around like-minded people. I want to work around people who, you know, to an extent think the way I do, maybe in terms of, you know, maybe leadership principles and, you know, being leaders of, of men and women. I also like to be challenged, right? I'd, I'd love to be challenged. Right. Um, there's no fun in not being challenged. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's, you know, it might sound like a fairy tale, but I've seen it work. I've seen case studies. I've talked to people. They've given me their perspectives, the organizations they've worked in, examples of how it's worked, the success that they've seen. And it's inspiring, man. And it works because there are organizations out there that, that are really successful um, yes. at doing things. Yeah. And, and I hope that managers understand that, you can't say, well, it won't work here. Well, you have that mindset. It will never work there. You're, you've already put yourself in a, in a lose-lose situation. Yeah. So. Yeah. And if you look at it, like, think about this, right? You're looking at it from just to add the layer of money, right? So you add mm -hmm. a layer of money. You know, sometimes managers are going to do and act the way they're going to act because they're thinking about their bonuses, Right. They're thinking about their promotion. And with promotion comes a higher salary. Uh, it comes more status, um, power, whatever you want to call it, right? You know, my goal, and, and I mean this sincerely, my goal, if I were to leave my current organization, which I don't see myself doing, right? But if I were to leave, I success for me is walking away, not with a higher salary, but, but having the team that I have say, you know, Rob was a good manager. Rob cared about me. Rob listened, right? I could tell Rob cared, right? If they say those things, then that to me is success. And if they do that, I, I have to thank servant leadership, Robert Greenleaf, intent-based leadership, David Marquette, and, you know, the good leaders that I've worked around to help me get to that point, to help me get to that that outcome, which is my team speaking about me like that. Wow. You know, that's, that's what it's about. And you know, if you do those things, John, the money's going to come. Yeah, of, of, of course. <laughs> Good things um, if nothing have. else, the, the, the love of what you're doing is going to be there. And that that's enough happiness to really get you through the tough time. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to an agile mindset. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating or review. We love your feedback. To hear more episodes of An Agile Mindset, visit Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, or SoundCloud, or head to perimeterdesigns.com slash podcasts.